Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host, Charlie McCarran, a composer in Minneapolis. And I started this show because I wanted to share insights from other composers and songwriters about how they make music. You can hear all the episodes at ComposerQuest.com. We're nearing the end of Season 1 of Composer Quest. We have just one more episode after this with composition professor Dmitry Tomasko, really brilliant theorist. Also, as I've been plugging a lot on this podcast recently, we have our first ever Composer Quest concert. We have several talented performers from past episodes. Paul Spring, Peter Fry, Matt Shuby, and his wife Donna. And we also have the Twin Cities Trio performing your listener-submitted arrangements. So you're going to get to hear everything from Lady Gaga to the Super Mario Brothers theme performed on bassoon, clarinet, and oboe. Also at the concert, I'll be announcing the second Composer Quest Quest, which will be a way for you listeners to apply what you've learned in this podcast in a composing challenge. So looking forward to announcing that. So the details for the concert. It's this Saturday, May 11th, 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. If you're in Minnesota, you can come in person to Yoga Soul Studio. And if you're not in Minnesota, you can tune in to ComposerQuest.com, and I'll have a live stream of the event. Again, this Saturday, May 11th, 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. Now, I'm very excited to bring you today's episode with the electronic musician Torley. I have to say, Torley's the coolest guy I've come across randomly on the internet. He has over 800 videos on YouTube talking about creativity and music. And he describes himself as a time-traveling, universe-crossing, autistic, cyberpunk monk. Torley's a fascinating guy to talk to. I would have never guessed that Torley had Asperger's syndrome, but he does, and it does affect the way he makes his music. As he describes it, he gets very focused on certain things, and the end result is that he comes up with albums with 50 tracks on them. Torley's an excellent producer, and it also surprised me to hear that he has a hearing disability. We talk about how he copes with that and still makes awesome music. And of course, Torley shares his words of wisdom on composing, so I hope you enjoy our talk. Charlie, hello! hello. <laughs> Friendly greetings! Well, it's a pleasure having you on Composer Quest here. Oh, well, thank you graciously for having me on board. Yeah, well... How did you get your start doing music stuff? So I was indoctrinated. (laughs) This is when I was too young to know any better or know any worse. Actually, my mother and father at age three, they enrolled me in the piano lessons. And so I believe it was the Suzuki method up there when I was living in Canada. And then I deviated because I frankly got bored (laughs) with a lot of that around the age of eight or so is when I started to branch out into my own composition, although I don't think I would really realize the impact of that until I was in my mid-teens. And so I would do a lot of things that were sort of heretical in nature because I wanted to go beyond traditional notation. And I found a lot of comfort in electronic music because I used to prod and ask questions. Like, for example, on a piano, you have 12 tones. Well, how do I get between those? And you can't do that on a regular piano. And 
some of my mentors at the time wondered why I would ask such a thing, but I was very, very curious. And so synthesizers, thanks to the wonders of pitch bending, do allow for that in a way that there's flexibility, of course, in string instruments. But I wanted the best of all words. I wanted to be a one-man orchestra. How does your creative process work when you're coming up with ideas for compositions? It can drastically vary, but I will give some specifics as to not evade the question. It's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> like, for instance, I have that series that you know about. I call it the musical Dream Journal. <laughs> Some days I'll be noodling and I'll hear a sound. I think, ah, it's a good sound. I can express it well. Don't know where to use it. But then some nights later, I will have a dream. I will have a dream that compels me to come back and play a melody. So that's the part I was missing. I was banging around block chords, but now I have a melody to go with that. Okay, so good, a melody. What else? And I think, okay, I start to jam and put a beat on that I didn't necessarily dream about. It's in the waking world. I think with so many people that say that they were inspired by a dream, the thing is that it wasn't all made in a dream. They try to remember what they can. You never, it's like that itch you can't quite scratch. So it's just that way for me too. I can't quite get to that track, but the, the soul of it is pure. The, the core ideas are true. I don't think I have at times, I lack words to describe the sorts of emotions I feel I want to get across in art. And I feel in some ways in music, I'm much more fluent. Just like with a written dream journal, someone springs out of bed before they forget their dream, they want to capture it in paper. And I find I can play music much faster than I can write. And my handwriting is, is, is atrocious. Mm -hmm. The Dream Journal 3, what I really love doing with the synthesizer sounds that I'm checking out is the ones that they come from places that are kind of unknown, like the Soviet Union, uh, a basement, or I like to imagine there's synthesizers that would be free from Pripyat or Chernobyl, <laughs> they'd be <laughs> infected by radioactivity. When I do not feel inspired to play, I will, I will look at other sorts of art. For example, recently, I really enjoy reading or looking at photographs of modernist cuisine, known as molecular gastronomy to some. And I like looking at these cookbooks that just have these wonderful, wonderful, it's so full, you can almost taste it coming off the, the page like that. And for me, that's a revelation because I enjoy texture in its many forms. I've done graphic arts texturing uh, in the computer world. I really like translating that to music. So I always look for parallels and bridges and those sorts of intersections. I was watching one of your videos and I was really okay. surprised to hear you say that you hear things differently yeah. than most people 
hyperacusis. Could yes. you maybe talk about that? Okay, it really sucks to have a hearing disability and be a musician. And one thing I would implore a lot of people is to protect their hearing and without that coming across as a nag because when you've lost it, you regret it. And I sure do. I was exposed to too much loud sound when I was young through going to raves and not having proper protection. And so hyperacusis, what it is, is it's a collapsed tolerance to sound. And so for me, high frequencies are often really painful, the clanking of silverware. And along with it, it's really annoying because the way I hear frequencies, it's kind of muffled and I have to compensate. I have to put inline filters in Ableton Live. I have to use the equalization so I can hear things as an equivalent as how someone else would hear them. So yeah, I've struggled with this. It's come on and off in its worsening stages. And so I do have to get plenty of rest. And that's why I don't listen to music as much as I would love to. Because sometimes when it's too loud, then I'll get an after effect. Like I'll get crackling noises. It sounds like gravel in my ears and it's horrible. Hyperacusis is still very much a mystery. And I've just read these tear and cringe inducing stories of people that have been driven to suicide because of that. And I'm thankful that mine hasn't been as bad as that, but my heart goes out to when people suffer and they can't go out in the everyday world and they have to isolate themselves because their ability to enjoy even, for example, the sound of their husband and wife speaking has been destroyed by hyperacusis. And if anyone else is listening to this, who thinks they might have this, I encourage you to get a hearing exam as soon as possible. Check with an audiologist. If you're making music, there are tools that I use that really help called spectrum analyzer and, and matchers that can take the equalization curve of another song that you knew at one time it sounded good or it sounded right to you. And it can transfer and map that onto your, so you kind of get a better idea. It's like color matching about what other people might be hearing. I found that to be a really important part of my composing process. Well, it's interesting thinking about how a lot of producers are older and they're making music for teenagers who probably hear it quite differently than the older ears would. I don't know. Exactly. What it also brings to mind is the, are you familiar with the loudness wars? Yes. This is terrible, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it is war no one wins. If you lose your dynamic range and music is loud all the time, it is like a painting that lacks any state of difference or variance between colors. Even if you're only going to use two shades, you'll never get to really experience the valleys and the mountains and the grandeur that can have. It's interesting to see the 80s revival sort of thing with a lot of the synth pop and chill wave. And it's accurate on some fronts how they seek out the original gear or very well sampled versions, but they often miss out on the fact that in the 80s, recordings weren't squashed like that. You had a lot more depth and drive. 80s recordings or 70s recordings even, people say it's open or warm. Well, that's a huge part of it because things weren't dynamically clipping all the time. Mm -hmm. So with mine, I do have to make more compromises than I care for sometimes. But there are times where in a piece, in one piece, I do like to have sort of softer parts, Not not to stun or startle someone, but just because that's what works. It's ambient. And then it can build up to a rolling crescendo.
the glitch piano project that I did. At first, it started out as a mini set, I think of four or eight, and I decided, okay, let's go for fifty, <laughs> just because, <laughs> just because, not just because we can, but because I really have a lot of those ideas I want to explore. The the matter of glitch piano, as the name suggests, was really that classical background of mine combined with the techie electronics. It's interesting to take really great piano sounds that are, they have a lot of character to them. For example, they're played in a church. You can almost feel the presence of the congregation there or something like that. They have that age, that beauty, that character. And then chopping those samples up in various sorts of ways or pushing those, like that piano in that church might never have been used to play a Chinese pentatonic scale. But I did that in one of my pieces in that called Hakka Scholar, which is based on some of my, my Asian roots, as it were. And I thought to myself, okay, this is something that I can really get behind because it's sort of that fusion of the classical Chinese and Western forms of music. I think another way to think about it is what Brian Eno said about surrender versus control. And I felt very controlled in my classical upbringing. So I almost thought of this, the cover art shows this kind of, the cover art, by the way, was done by, by my lovely wife, Ravenel. And I asked her this sort of thing where I imagine these piano monsters enslaving humanity. Like what if our, this is another thing in sci-fi, what if machines, the machines that we think we're in control of, what if they turn against us? And we were formerly the puppet masters playing the strings, but now they have up, us up on strings in kind of a Freddy Krueger nightmarish ways. And, and so that's, that was the, the, the concept and, and, and a thrust behind Glitch Piano. I think I remember reading one of your posts about Glitch Piano too and talking about how it's therapy for perfectionists doing something like that. <laughs> yes, that's another point. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up because I've sometimes had... I don't know if OCD is the right way to describe it. I haven't been clinically diagnosed with that, although I have been clinically diagnosed with Asperger's or Asperger's form of autism. If we want to discuss that later. <laughs> but yeah, sometimes I would find that glitch for me is, again, that surrender of losing a part that you meant to keep under lock and key and, and being all right with that. Another beautiful example is when monks come together and they create a, like in the Eastern Spears, Tibetan even, I think the mandala, and all this colored full sand. And by the end, it has something so beautiful, but then they blow it away. And, and all that sand just gets mixed up. It goes back to its state. So in recognizing in sort of way, there's a sadness, uh, almost melancholy of that transience in life that, yeah, you've created art and maybe people, they want to live on forever, whether it's through their children or through creating art, they want to be recognized and have that sort of echo in eternity, <laughs> as some people say. But there is a beauty, too, with something having its moment, then it's a memory. And then that memory becomes fallible, almost, and then corroded. Just like if pictures in a camera, you take them, it's a crisp digital camera, but if water leaks in, I've seen some cool examples of this. They get glitched up, this lines sneak in, and people's faces get all sort of mangled up. 
So it's it's a scary and beautiful thing at the same time. But I think that heightened expression keeps things fresh because as we get older, we have less first-time experiences. And so some people feel like, oh, when I was young, every day going to school was an ordeal. I would re- remember that. But then when you get older, like uh, the drudgery of everyday work and you forget that. So I think in some way for me, glitch represents a sort of beauty of, hey, there can be surprises. There can be new first time serendipity. Yeah. Would you want to talk a little bit about how Asperger's, I hope I'm saying that right, Asperger's syndrome has affected the way you make music? Yeah. So the first thing I would like to say about that is the first, the way, the primary way I'm always thinking how Asperger's affected my life is that it has a very awkward name to say, Asperger's. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no slight against Dr. Hans Asperger, rest his soul, but you know how some medical conditions, they're difficult to talk about because they have an awful name. They just sound so bad and it creates a stigma. Oh my gosh. So... Yeah, when I was young, I would increasingly hear over time people like, Torley, you're really intense. You're really obsessed about that. And I thought I, I thought everyone is to like kind of the same degree. And I lack that referensive frame of mind. And so I am socially impaired that way. I was really helped, though, over time in virtual reality through the online environment called Second Life. And so that's played a huge role in helping me understand humans and other people and how people see the world differently. I think one thing that Asperger's particularly predisposes me into is that I get really fixated on topics. I'm going to get lost in there for days, if not weeks or months. I'm going to research the heck out of it. I want to find out the crux of what it is. And even so, I'm going to come back to it again and again. I am hungry for that kind of knowledge. Even if it gets to the point, sometimes it's it's unhealthy, like a good analogy is the character Dr. Bashir on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. There's one episode in which Dr. Bashir is investigating his brain. He finds all this clandestine knowledge. Apparently, all Star Trek geekery knows no bounds either. And he could stay there and he could dig, keep digging this knowledge, but then he'll die. he just get lost in his brain like that. And so for me, it's a really, really helpful thing to have my wife sometimes shake me out of it and I need to have that because I can go on these trips where I think, okay, an album. How do we define an album? Okay, 10, 15, 20 songs. Well, for me, uh, I don't know. 50, I need 50. It just feels right for this. It's what I want to explore for this set. I, I can't cut that down. So sometimes it's a challenge. It is a challenge to be terse. And I find there is a beauty in being brief. And and I think something that might surprise people, though, is I'm characterized as having an energy. I think that's fair to say. But I like to sleep a lot. I love to sleep and, and dream. And I think I sleep more than most people do. I take midday naps. I take little siestas. And afterwards, then when my Asperger's focus, I'll have a reading pile of things to go through, a bunch of things to absorb. But then, again, there's that, that problem of it's too much absorbing, too much consuming when I want to create. But then when I'm in the create phase then I'll end up there. So (laughs) I think it's a study in always being between those poles. And for myself, I don't have that sort of fluidity with social interaction. Some people, I guess they see themselves as mundane or it's an everyday thing. When I see people like that and being able to make small talk, I think it's such a charming thing to me.
I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, is music a full-time thing for you or how do you go about making a living? Ah, <laughs> yeah. My day job, as it were, is working in virtual reality, shared creative spaces, including Second Life. I work for the company, Linden Lab. We do Second Life. We do patterns. We do several other wonderful, wonderful up-and-coming games. And so how I got involved with that was a period of my life when hypercalculus was awful and I was so painful to make music. And I felt alone. I went on the internet. (laughs) I read a lot of cyberpunk fiction. I read about cyberspace. And then I found out about Second Life. I was addicted. I was hooked. Here, here goes the Asperger part of it. And so I spent a lot of time there. And then eventually, like so many things, you, you're going to spot all these threads coming together, these common motifs. A dream. I had a dream that I should apply for a job there. That's precisely what I did. I'm a senior. Here's my formal title. <laughs> if you want something to put me in a box, senior multimedia producer, which means I produce the videos, a lot of the trailers, uh, video tutorials, because I love to teach on that facet as well. And in addition to that, of course, I do the music for those trailers and other product promos, things like that. <laughs> That's interesting. I Well, I guess I knew people were having jobs within Second Life, but it's yeah. it's interesting. I've never talked to anyone about that. Yeah, it's such a trip for me because it's really the childhood fantasy. I've always had a dream of virtual reality working in that. And I think so often a truth within people is, okay, if you find yourself burned out in a conventional office job that you don't like, I mean, everyone has their own choice. Some people love that. Some people love a competitive, very politically driven environment there. I don't. But but if those people ask themselves, what was I really happy doing as a child before the rest of the world and authority figures kind of clouded my view. What did I like to do coloring outside outside the lines? That is often the answer. And so when I think back in the early 90s of me, how I got into experiments with virtual reality, not just as entertainment, but for instance, using avatars to simulate body language. There's a thread that relates strongly to me having Asperger's or being able to perform concerts through the internet. And that's something, of course, that appeals to my music side. What's it like making music with people within Second Life? I'd have to say right now, I don't do so much of that. There are people that that have done a lot more of that than me because latency is such a pain. Even a a few milliseconds delaying a note of you playing with other people throw everyone off time. You know, you want your intention is you want to sound like a, a tight jazz funk groove but here you are sounding like an aleatoric really sloppy <laughs> you're getting an all sorts of weird time signatures and you didn't in- intend that well what kind of tips would you have for composers out there who are maybe they're a little bit intimidated to do a whole album of like 50 songs yeah. like yours <laughs> <laughs> There's often this advice that to make a big project easier, break it down into little pieces. But for me, I always still feel intimidated looking at the thinking, you know, eventually it's going to have to add up to all this. So one of the things is to accept as emotionally as you need to, if you need private time, that it's going to be a roller coaster. If you're creating art that is true to yourself, you're going to have your ups and downs. You're going to have to deal with that yourself. It's much better than the alternative of making something you don't feel anything for. There is a crowd of people that preach 
this is oversimplistic. I don't like this at all. This is very unhealthy. They say, gear doesn't matter. And you can make great music with anything. You can make it with sticks and stones. Well, I'm sure you can. But that defeats and is disrespectful to tool makers. And it's so unhelpful to new musicians. Because when they are unable to make music with, say, a cheap piece of crap, then they, they hate themselves for it. They think, oh, I can't even do a song with this, with this bargain basement piece of equipment. It creates those wrong kinds of expectations. And then inversely, on the other side, there's that crowd of people that say, oh, you need these sounds to sound pro. Otherwise, you're not going to sound like a, one of those big chart hits or something like that. Don't put these sorts of comparisons just like how body image in society is very unhealthy, having these expectations of thinking a supermodel that is photoshopped is so, so devastating to a lot of women especially. And so in creating, even with limited resources, I love being resourceful, but at the same time realize there's a lot of false imagery out there. I get disturbed when I see these press reviews. You may have seen a lot of them that refer to so-and-so upcoming producer is hitting the charts or is on the scene. They're written all the same way. And I see the same thing for these music sample packs. They're, they're saying, these are the drums you need for your chart hits, yo. And, and things like this. And being consumer is not problematic in itself, but falling into these traps of something that is not you. If I had to say one more thing on the subject, looking at growth, to realize to not be boxed into a scene, to realize that who you are and what you may succeed at, what people may love most about you, may be very, very different than how you see yourself. You may see yourself making music in a given genre, but then you have an accidental hit on YouTube. That's completely, that's unlike anything you've done before. I've seen this some before with some of my friends. They step out there and then they're like, wow. I didn't know that. And then they'll shift towards that focus, which, of course, it's problematic because it creates more pressure to create more things like that, right, when it's an accident. Well, I think that kind of covers <laughs> the questions I had planned for you, but <laughs> it was really great getting to talk with you, Charlie. Oh, yeah. Totally you too, Charlie. Yep. We'll see you on the internet. Yeah. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Composer Quest with Torley. For more of his music, you can visit torley.com, T-O-R-L-E-Y. And if you enjoyed hearing Torley talk, I highly recommend going to youtube.com slash Torley. He has so many inspirational speeches up there that are both funny and heartfelt. All the music you heard in this episode is listed in the show notes at composerquest.com slash Torley. Also at that site, we have a very special treat I challenged Torley to come up with an intro theme for the episode, and he challenged me back. He asked me to send him some recorded samples from random things in my room, such as my crappy keyboard, my African kalimba, etc. And Torley took my samples and made a four-minute track out of it called Tiki Riot Style, which was also, as many of his songs are, based on a dream. So if you go to composerquest.com slash Torley, you can hear the full track and read about the dream. And we also get to hear an example of how Torley hears differently. He made an alternate mix of this theme song that sounds better to him. So again, that's composerquest.com slash Torley. And if you've been enjoying the show, I would always love to hear from you. Facebook.com slash composerquest, twitter.com slash composerquest, or you could write a little iTunes review. 
I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Now here's another taste of the track that Torley made for this episode, Tiki Riot Style. Tiki Riot Style. 